0: Good morning. It is great to be with you this morning. My name is John Dunning. I serve with an organization called RUF, which stands for Reformed University Fellowship on the campus of Kansas State University. It is the college ministry of the Presbyterian Church in America, of our denomination. And I'm there in partnership with you all and the rest of our presbytery serving students with the gospel. I want to say thank you for your support and especially for your prayers for us. Not a day goes by where I don't, I'm not very much aware of the fact that many are praying for us literally around the country in our labors with these students on a daily basis. Um, on that note, if you don't have our contact information or, or a, a reminder to pray for us would be helpful. On the back welcome table outside of in the Narthex area, there are some brown envelopes like this with a sticker on the top. Inside, there's a picture of my family, a magnet, and then and a way to get in touch with us. I would love it if it, one of these went home with each family, just to, to be able to pray for us and to be in touch with us um, as you partner with us in, the, in our work there. Like I said, I'm aware of the daily of the difference that that makes in our lives as students, and I would love for you to continue to pray for us and, be, and keep in touch with us and let, to let you know how to be doing that. If you have your Bibles with us, please turn with, with you. Please turn with me in it to Psalm 80. And consider this text this morning. And no, not knowing that your congregational meeting was happening this morning, but knowing that you all were in a time of transition, I chose this text somewhat in, in, intentionally for us to consider together this morning. You see, the Psalm 80, in my mind and in my estimation, answers a question that we all have, but we may not be asking. And the, simple, the very simple question is this How do we pray for our church? People often ask me, How do, how do we pray for you, John, as you minister, minister on campus? But I'm not sure that we're as quick to ask, How do we pray for our church? Not just for our church, but for the gathered people of God around the world, across space and time, as, as those who come and, and especially for those who come after us, especially as God's people struggle to, make, to be faithful followers of Jesus in a world that doesn't understand what we're doing when we gather each time we gather. How do we pray for the ministry of the church? It's a question I want us to consider this morning. Now as you, if you look at the text, before I read it, I want to point this out to you, just to, because I think it's, it's curious about this, with this text in particular. If you look at the way that the text is probably printed in your Bibles, I want you to notice um, verses 1 and 2. You see verses 1 and 2, and then you see a space, and then in verse 3 is kind of set out by itself. And then we, we see verses 4, 5, and 6, and then we see verse 7. Again, something similar, spaced out by itself. And then a little bit longer text, and then a little bit longer text, and then verse 19. We know that the Psalms were, were written and collected to be the hymn book and the song book and the prayer book of God's people. That these would be the words that God's people would share together over time, as they cry out to their God in both need and in want and in joy and in sorrow, as we would say. Th- this psalm, though, highlights in particular the structure, and I point out the structure because it actually reads like a song, if you will. There's a first stanza, and then there's a chorus. There's a second stanza, there's a chorus. There's a third stanza, and then what we, we might call a bridge, something that stands a little bit different, and it ends with a chorus. And I think that's highly intentional, and I want to consider that as we read it now. So here, here now as we read to read to us from Psalm 80 before we consider these things. Hear now the word of the Lord. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the, with the bread, of, bread of tears, and given them tears to drink with in, all, in full measure. You make us an object of, con- of contention for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine, that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You, cle- you cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the, filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea, and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls, so that all who pass along may pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for, your, for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire, they have cut it down, and they, have, and they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me as we consider these things together? Merciful, gracious, Holy, Almighty God. We have sung, we have spoken, we have prayed to you as the Almighty Maker of heaven and earth already this morning. And in this space, in this time, we ask that you would send out your light and your truth to us. Holy Spirit, we trust in your presence that you would lead us to the place where the Father is, that we might see him, that we might behold him, that we might know him for as he is. Father, I pray for clarity of of thought and of word. May your word be clear to us. May it be powerful in our midst and may it accomplish its purposes in us and through us. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray all of this. Amen. I don't know if you're paying attention or not. If you're on social media, I pray that you're not. But if you are, um, I am, of course, said in jest there a little bit. But it's been a difficult few years for the church of the Lord Jesus, even especially in this country. I could list off a, a, just a, a plethora of events and situations that, that you may or may not be aware of, of pastors doing illicit things, of abuse of power to their staff, to their congregation, of, of um, well-known pastors and speakers connected with covering up child abuse, of, of, of stories being recounted of, of men being very different, men and women being different in leadership publicly than they are privately. The, the list is, is sadly unending, in fact I was having a discussion with a friend of mine who's training for the ministry right now recently and we both just lamented the fact that that's what we see almost on a daily basis now such and such has been accused of this so and so has been accused of this and and while we would be we we, we might be quick to want to say it's someone out there it's someone someone it's another denomination it's it's just as rampant in our denomination it's just as much of a reality as as it is for us what do you do with that what do you do when men, when men and women call to lead God's people, to care for God's people, to minister among them, among us? Get caught. And not only, when, not only does the sadness of it getting caught, but the, the public nature of it. What do, what do we do with that? How do we respond? The psalmist this morning, I, I, he, I want us to hear, directs us to pray. To pray with boldness, to pray with honesty, and to pray with depth is what we're going to see in a few moments. But in order to understand where, where, how this passage gets set up, I want to take you on a brief little history of God's people. The Scriptures tell us that there's a man named Abraham. Actually, when we first meet him, his name was Abram. And God called him away from his family, out of his place that was familiar, to a place that, that he did not know. And this man and his, his dear wife, Sarai, who would later become Sarah, were barren. They had no children. They could not have children. But in their, in their aged years, God said... Not only am I going to give you a child, but I'm going to make nations of you and I'm going to change the world through your offspring. And indeed, he gave Abraham and Sarah Sarah a son named Isaac who in turn had a son named Jacob who would be renamed Israel, who in turn had 12 sons and other daughters. These 12 sons would, would become the 12 tribes that would become the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel would grow and grow and grow and grow. And eventually they would cry out to their God for a king Though God warned them that might not be the best thing for them. They cried out for the king nonetheless. And he gave them a man named Saul who looked the part in every way, shape, and form. He looked the part. He was the ideal king until he wasn't the ideal king. But then God called a man named David, a man after his own heart, it's Scripture tells us. And David began to rule, and, and the, the people of God were strengthened, and they were protected, and their, the, their influence and their, their world expanded. David had a son named Solomon. David wanted to build God a temple, and God said, no, but your son will do it. And Solomon built this temple. You see, up until this time, God's presence was marked with his people with this tent called a tabernacle. And then, the heart of this tabernacle, the heart of this tent, was the Holy of Holies, was the Ark of the Covenant, telling God that his people were with them. But then God said, after Solomon was distracted by the number of women that he could not keep his eyes or hands off of, God said, something's going to happen to your son. And his son, Rehoboam, um, made some very bad decisions, political decisions, ignoring the counsel that he was given. And it it split the nation of Israel into two nations. We we think of the northern kingdom led by Jeroboam and the southern kingdom led by Rehoboam. And and in the north, what we need to know with regard to Psalm 80 is this. Jeroboam was scared that the, 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 the kingdom that he was amassing around himself, the northern kingdom of Israel, this split kingdom, that the people would re- want to return because the way to worship was in Jerusalem in the southern kingdom. And so what, what Jeroboam did was, again, against, the, against the, the stark instruction of Scripture, he made two golden calves for the people to worship to keep them out of Jerusalem. In his mind, if we can worship where we are, we don't have to go anywhere and we'll stay together. This will keep us unified. This will keep us together. But this goes against everything that God had told his people about crafting idols, about worshipping anything, anything but, but God alone. But the question is, why does this matter? Well, look at Psalm 80. I want you to hear, and initially what we pay attention to is the fact that the people are struggling, aren't they? Look at verses 4 and 5. Notice what it says. O Lord of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. What we hear is the people are struggling. But notice how the people are described in verse 1. He speaks of Joseph, one of Israel's 12 sons. He speaks of Ephraim and, and, and Benjamin and Manasseh, again representing some of the smaller, more insignificant tribes of the people of Israel, of the people of God. What he's speaking of, and, and he uses the vine imagery that, that re, that's reflected in other places in Scripture, as we see here, is reflected in Isaiah 5. And we read in verse 4 that he's angry with his people's prayers. The people of God are struggling. They're being torn apart, if you will. The imagery with regard to this vine and it was with its protections being torn away from it or vivid in the middle of this psalm, aren't they? What do, the, what do the people do? The chorus of the song is restore us. It is restore us. This is not a song of celebration of judgment. It is a song of corporate lament. You see, it's written by those who are involved in the temple worship. Verse 1 makes allusion to that. Those in Jerusalem, those who had remained in the southern kingdom, those who were more or less faithful to their God. To the God of Israel, to the God of their forefathers. The Southern Kingdom, but this, what the Southern Kingdom is doing, what the writers of this psalm are doing, is they're choosing to grieve and mourn over this loss and pray for restoration. This is not a them prayer, it's an us prayer. This is what I mean. Not to be too simplistic, but this is what I mean. Some of you have sat in church and thought, man, my wife needs to hear this message this morning. Or, kids, are you paying attention? You need to hear what the pastor is saying because you've struggled with this this week. And those are honest responses, right? But that's not what Psalm 80 prayer it prays. You see, the faithful of God, those who are not worshiping idols, are praying for the whole of the nation. They're not praying them prayers, they're praying us prayers. God, restore us. Their concern is for the unity of God's people. The people who are not worshiping idols are acknowledging that some in their midst are worshiping idols, and they're praying for them. They're praying for restoration. They're praying for healing. You see, what, what it means for us is this. We see some part of the church struggle and even collapse. We experience the distance of silence of God, and how do we respond? Our instinct is to say us versus them. We blame their polity. We blame their lack of seriousness with the Scriptures, their lack of holding to the truthfulness of Scriptures. We blame their style of worship. What's modeled for us in this text is that we would pray us prayers. That we would pray for healing. Pray for the return to what God intended for all of us to be. That we would pray together for unity. That's the prayer that that we're called to. So I want us to consider this morning, what would it look like for us to pray this way? What does it look like for us to pray us prayers, even in the midst of grieving relationships, even in the midst of loss, even in the midst of frustration? Well, as the text begins in verses 1 and 2, the first thing I want you to hear is, that, is this. God invites us to pray with great boldness. He invites us to pray with great boldness. Notice in verses 1 and 2 how, how the, 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 the psalmist calls God himself to action. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim and sh- shine forth before Ephraim and ben- Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us you hear his plea? There's an urgency in this prayer. And, it's, and it's, as if, it's as if God is not listening, that he's distant, that he's maybe even asleep. The words that are bold, come, come to save us. Come to us, give ear to us, bend your ear, come down closer because you may not be able to hear because it feels like you're at a distance, oh God. They're not saying this brashly or arrogantly, but it's an honest crying out th- th- for God to take action for his people. This prayer speaks to God directly out of need. But notice what else he does in verse 1. Not only is this a call to to action, but it's a call to him who is holy and 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 to the one who hears. Notice notice in verse 1, what does it say? He speaks of God as the shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim. The prayer is that he would shine forth. The cherubim were, the, were these angelic beings that were, that were situated on this box called the Ark of the Covenant. And as I said earlier, it was at the center of the tabernacle, the center of the worship of God. Because after the people of God had constructed it according to God's plan in the book of Exodus, a f- <laughs> pillar of fire came down at night and a cloud rested on it in the day to let God's people know that he was indeed with them. But even as he was with them, that he is holy. That he is not to be approached casually or informally. That he's not to be approached on our terms, but only on his terms. This is a reminder that God's presence was with his people, but indeed he is the Holy One. What else could we do but cry to him with boldness? If he is holy, if he is, but, and he is also near, and the psalmist cries out to him with action, we're called to pray with great boldness. There's a directness here, a boldness here that's refreshing, isn't it? Some of us have, some, have the need of help in this area. Some of us, like myself, are known to be a little bit sideways and not always, not always bold in, in what we request. I think I get it honestly from my mom, to be honest with you. As a child, I can remember my mom saying things like, John, when was the last time you cleaned your room? Which was my mom's way of saying, it's time to clean your room, John. Or she would say things like, she would th- th- say things like this, "John, don't you want to clean your room?" This was an ongoing issue in my house growing up. "John, don't you want to go clean your room?" And my thought was, "Well, no, of course I don't. Isn't that obvious? Now, my mom wasn't trying to be sideways or trying to be not bold. I think she was trying to, to encourage me to think for myself and acknowledge the need that I had to take care of my own stuff. But, but the, the, the author doesn't model praying that way for us, does he? He doesn't say, make a suggestion and see what happens. He's crying out to God in the midst of his need, to the one who is holy and the one who is near, the one who is, who's invites this kind of prayer. And he models for us a boldness. The start, this is a starting place is fascinating. There's a need before the writer and his first response is to ask God to act, to ask him to do something for his people. Do we pray that way? Do we ask God in simple terms, God, I need your help. Would you help me find my keys? It's simple. But do we pray with boldness? Father, I don't know where my children are spiritually. Would your Spirit show us through, through your Word and w- would your Spirit be at work in my, in my kids' lives because I'm scared for them? Would your Word change my neighbors because I see the suffering that they're going through? Would you give me boldness and confidence to reach out in love? I'm scared to death because I don't know what the response will be. Where do you long to see God act in your midst as a church? Do you pray together for courage to speak about Jesus to your neighbors? Do you pray it yourself? Do you pray it as a congregation? Do you pray that he would change lives? Do you pray for repentance for those who are wandering? And, And notice, even as you pray these things, this boldness never loses sight of God's holiness. God is not our butler, he's not our lackey, he's not our Santa Claus giving us what we wish for as long as we do what's, what we think is right. This is what he invites us to. Because this God is, a, is the bold one. This God is the holy one. This God is the one who pursues us and comes and chases after us. He doesn't wait for us to be ready in our terms. He comes in and, and, and breaks into our circumstances and changes our lives. He invites us to pray with boldness. We continue on, look at verses 4 through 6. The second thing I want us to see is that God also invites a great honesty. We might say a humble honesty, but an honesty nonetheless. Notice what he, what he, notice what he invites us to do in verse 4. He invites us to ask our questions. Here, look, look in verse 4. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? How long will you be angry with your people's prayers? This is the spiritual version of the question from the back seat of the car, right? Are we there yet? Every summer I take students to, to, to Florida for our summer conferences after school gets out. And my mind often goes there when I think of this how long question, not because the students were impatient as we drive back from a great week on the beach, because the last time we, we, we all drove together, a 16 and a half hour car trip grew, grew into a two day car trip that meant a flat tire, an extra hotel stay that we didn't plan, and, and everything else in bad weather and having to stop for that, that, that changed all of our plans. We know what it is to crowd and ask how long because it's a daily experience. Even in an instant world where so much is at our fingertips and gratification is just around the corner, right? We know what it is to have to wait. This is not a foreign question to us. But in the lips of the psalmist, it goes to God himself. God, how long? How much longer must we endure what we're enduring? How much longer must we be, we be, we be without a pastor? How much longer am I going to have to put up with this? How long, O oh Lord? Now later in the psalm, if you look at, jump down to verse 12, he asks, he asks another important question that we often hear. Why have you broken down the, broken down the walls so that, they were the, so that all who pass along in the way pluck its fruit? Again, it's a familiar question to us. Why? But again, this, the, these words are put in the mouth of the psalmist. These questions don't often receive answers but they're part of our groaning over what is lost in this world. It's okay to ask why. It's not a stupid question. It's not an unfaithful question because you're longing for God, you're expressing a longing for God to move and to act and we simply don't understand. And as our Heavenly Father, He invites these questions for us to ask them together. But notice what we see also in in 5 and 6, not only are we invited to ask our questions, we're also invited to express our hurt. Again, look at verses 5 and 6. You have, fed them with the bread of, you have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You have made us an object of contention of con, for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. He's expressing the struggle and the suffering of what it is to follow God in a world that doesn't understand. Notice how he recounts the experiences of God's people. He speaks of tears, even buckets of tears, which is a, a literal paraphrase of that thought of tears in full measure. The experience of God has been shed tears over what they've experienced. It may sound indulgent or self-absorbed to, to us, but there is a freedom here granted to express this. He has in verse 6 the impact of this, that we are objects of contention. Things have been, become difficult for us with our neighbors, possibly even as a result of the other's behavior. The laughter here is not a sitcom laugh track. It is mocking and derision. And look, I know that for, for many of us, we may say they can laugh all they want, they just don't understand, and, and you know, they can do what they want all the way to hell, we might say somewhat crassly. But let's be honest. Even as adults, we don't like to be laughed at. We don't like to be mocked. Some of you experience that on a daily basis at your workplace or in your neighborhoods or among other parents because they simply don't understand why you spend your money the way that you do and why you would give. And why you give of your time and your energy. Why you would wake up early on a Sunday morning to be here on a regular basis and not be doing the other things that the other parents and families are doing. And I know that that eats at you, at least a little bit. I know that it eats at us. Are you honest with God and with his people, is the question before us. Can you take up this invitation to express your questions and to express your struggle and to express your hurt? People in this room need you to be able to do that, need to be able to do that, and they need, you to, they need to know that it's okay. Are we as a church honest about the questions we have and the experiences that are real for us? What questions do you have that need to be asking? What questions do you think your kids have that that they need to have the freedom to ask and need need help to to think through? What experiences do you need to give voice to, to acknowledge to God and to admit to those around you that that things are not as they they may appear to be, that your life is not as put together as it may come across? Can we not pray to God together out loud and acknowledge before one another that life is at times a mess in ways that we, couldn't, that we could never have anticipated? Again, God's in, God invites us to this kind of honesty. Can we acknowledge the hurt that we or others have experienced from the church? Can we acknowledge that there may be, here, there, there may be some who aren't with us this morning because of hurt that they've experienced? And I know that most things go two ways. I understand that. I don't say that and blame you because I don't know any of these situations here in particular at all. But I've mean, been a part of a church for the better part of 10 years and served in ministry for 20. I know that people get hurt by the things that people like me say and do. And there's, there's, there's an honesty that we, need, that we can embrace to bring that before God and to pray for repentance, even for ourselves, to pray for ears to hear those who are hurting and the courage to go and cry out one more time and try to pursue them. God invites us to consider this kind of to pray with this kind of honesty. But as you look at the biggest chunk of this passage, verses 8 to 18, the third thing that I want us to hear is this. God invites us also to pray with, with great depth. Now the writer introduces a metaphor, likening the people of God to a vine. This shows up in the prophets and Isaiah chapter 5 and other places, and is most likely Jesus' reference to the pointed out in John 15, if you're if you're familiar with where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. It's one of those themes that really runs throughout most of Scripture. And he picks that up here, but notice how he talks about it. What he does, is, as he prays, he first of all appeals to God's past work. Look at verses 8 through 11. You brought forth a vine out of Egypt and drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out, the, sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. He's saying that, that when, when God brought His people out of Egypt, he planted them in the place it would be for them that He promised them, and that, that, that vine began to grow and thrive and flourish and spread and spread and spread and spread. God planted it and intended it, doing everything he could that it might thrive and flourish in, this, in its environment. And that's exactly what it did as it grew and grew and spread and spread. And so why, in verse 12, is an honest question? Because the people of God had known growth and expansion and hope and life. But now they do not see it in the same way. And the, the writer cries out with why. The writer's appealing to God's commitment and faithfulness to his people. That's part of the depth which God calls us to. That's, that's why we read our Bibles. That's why, that's why we want to understand and know more because it reveals to us who God is and how he's at work in his world by seeing what he's done in the past. But notice how the writer also appeals to God's compassion. Again, look at the text in verses 14 and 15. Turn again, O God of hosts, Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted for the son whom you made strong for yourself. He's appealing to, the, to, the, to a compassionate God, to the one, the one um, what he alludes to is, is, there is restoration, but he, when he says turn again, it's the same root that he uses in other places to, to, to use, to, when he uses the word restore. And he asks God to see and have regard, to care for what is so dear to him, the one whom we value so highly. He's inviting, he's inviting us to think about the, a, a compassionate God, to think about God's faithfulness to his people, how, he's, how he built us up, how his hope for us was not to crush us and manipulate us, but, but that we might flourish in his world now and in, into eternity. Does that not cause us to, to, to pursue God even more, more, more greatly in prayer? To know that he is compassionate, to know that he's not disinterested, to know that he does care, that he has reached out that he has reached out for us, that he's brought us safely thus far, and he will, as we sing, he will safely lead us home one day. Doesn't that not cause us to consider more boldness and more honesty in our prayers? To know that God is compassionate towards his people. And notice in verse eighteen how there's also an appeal to our need. Notice what he says there. He says, Then we shall not then we shall turn back from you. Then we shall not turn back from you give us life and we will call upon your name to hear what he's crying out. This is an acknowledgment that the people have turned back from God. It's a crowd it's a crowd of repentance, it's a crowd of admitting our need, confessing our sin and turning to God in order for things to change. Because we cannot be the solution to our own problems. That's what's being acknowledged here. Think of how our confession of faith defines repentance. Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, that's us, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. What's so vital in this definition is, is this, and I realize that that's a mouthful, but it's that, that the sinner would turn from his sin to God. That's what we're, that's what we're invited to do here. To consider the compassionate God. To consider the God who is near. To consider the God who's been faithful in the past. And to consider what our need is. To actually look at where we're failing. To look at the, the, the mess that we don't want to bring out into the open. To let light shine into places it needs to shine. To reveal where we need help so that we might turn even in those places. Not to fix ourselves, but to God himself. The one alone who can meet us where we are. What do you do when the check engine light comes on in your car? For for some of us, you know, my, my, both of our vehicles, they're on at the moment, and it's an indication that they need an oil change. It's the way they're made. But what if it keeps coming back? What if the check engine light keeps coming on? What do you do? Does ignoring it work? Does putting a piece of tape over it so does it, you can't see it work? No, I mean of course not. What we do is we take it to the shop and we we get we get, the, get them to plug their little computer thing into it, so that it prints out and tells us what, what the what, what, what error messages are actually that the engine is, is flashing to let us know, so that we can take care of it. we look at what's wrong with great depth to find understanding so that we might deal with it. In our struggle, is there not, isn't there a temptation not to go deeper because we're worried about what we'll find? That if we dig more into the Scriptures, is there not a concern that we might find things we don't understand and that might mess us up and we don't know what to do with that? I hope so. I hope that that's what we'll find. We don't want to dig. What's interesting here is that what the, psalmist, the way he ends this text is he says, dig deeper. No more of who God is, No more of His ways with His world. There will be things you don't understand. Let that be a comfort to you, that God is bigger than you, that He is greater than you, that He is more, more powerful and more wonderful than you could ever begin to imagine. What work have we seen God do in His church in the past and in the present that we need to be reminded of? This may mean you need to read a book or two now and then. It may mean you need to turn something off in your life to just to, to, to sit with a group of people and wrestle with I have these questions and I don't know that I fully understand. Can you help me to ask questions of one another, to admit that we don't understand? Where do we need to seek God's compassion? To be reminded that He actually is compassionate and merciful. He's slow to anger and He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, as His Word tells us. And what does repentance look like for us? What would it look like for us to acknowledge and turn? As I said, God needs to be the solution, y'all. We can't be the solution to ourselves. That's why we pray to begin with. We are thoroughly the problem. And so this prayer with increasing intensity cries out to God. Now notice, there's one thing I want to, to, as a conclude, there's one thing I want to point out to you. Look at verses 15 and verse 17, and notice how he speaks of God himself, and how God speaks of his people. In verse 15, The stock that your right hand planted, and for the Son, whom you made strong for yourself. And then done in verse 17. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man, whom you have made strong for yourself. The idea that that the people of Israel were seen as the son of God, were seen as God's son, runs throughout Scripture. In Exodus chapter 4, as the people are enslaved in Egypt, we hear the conversation between Moses and Aaron and the Pharaoh. or We hear God actually tell this to Moses and Aaron. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Israel is my firstborn son. The prophet Hosea picks this up in chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. The Lord says, out of Egypt I called my son. Some of you may know your Bibles, where I'm heading with this, but in Matthew chapter 2, We read this, Now when they, Joseph and Mary and the newly born Jesus, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the the death of Herod. Now listen to this last part in verse 15 of Matthew chapter 2. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. See, why that matters here is this. As God invites us to pray with boldness and as he invites us to pray with honesty, as he invites us to pray with depth, the one who fulfills this ultimately and fully is Jesus because Jesus is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God who, who was born and took on flesh. He lived, he died and rose again in our place because we can't be the solution you can never pray perfectly enough. You can never pray hard enough or long enough or boldly enough or honestly enough to make God hear you. And yet we have Jesus to, tell, to remind us that God came and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth, that God might hear us because he hears Jesus and Jesus is here for us in our place. Well, this is the hope that we have. This is why we can pray with boldness. This is why we can ask great things of God, not knowing what, what he'll choose to do, but trusting that he will act. This is why we can be honest, brutally honest with ourselves and with one another about our sins, about our failings, about our hurts. And this is why we can pray with great depth, why we can get to know, seek to know God more and more, that it might spur us on to pray more and more because God indeed hears us. Father, because of Jesus, these promises are true. Let's pray. Father, in your mercy and in your great grace, Father, we are timid, we are quick to make excuses. We are quick to, to, not, to not pray. Because of Jesus, we pray that you would, you would change that in us. Fathers, we, we, we pray for your blessing and for your wisdom and grace. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.